0: So for about 30 years, I've been really interested in questions regarding the evolution of culture and its consequences for human groups. Um, Culture is this really strange puzzle. It's omnipresent, it's all around us, but it's invisible. We really rarely recognize how powerful a force it is. And it's really astonishing that something that's affecting us so much is something we take for granted. It's kind of like the old story about two fish. Two fish are swimming along and another fish comes by and says, hey boys, how's the water? and they swim on, and one of the fish says to the other, what the hell is water? And the story is really interesting and profound point, has a profound point, which is that sometimes the most important realities are the things that are hardest to see. Uh, For fish, that's water. For humans, that's culture. And um, there's just a remarkable cultural diversity around the world um, in terms of last thousands of years. We now evolved to have 195 countries, 7,000 languages, many, many religions. And this diversity is pretty remarkable, given that the, we share about 96% of the human genome with chimpanzees that have very similar behaviors across communities. So I've been really fascinated with the study of culture, um, and that's what I've been devoted my, my career to. I first stumbled into culture accidentally. Uh, as an undergraduate, I was pre-med, and I, life happens when you're making other plans. I happened to take a class with Carolyn Keating, who was teaching a course on cross-cultural human development. And I had never heard of this field of cross-cultural psychology. um, And I really got a deep dive into this area. And I was fascinated. Uh, She did a lot of research with Marcel Siegel in Africa looking at visual illusions. And even basic illusions like the Mueller-Lyer illusion, you might remember this with two lines, that um, Americans are very susceptible to, um, actually don't replicate in Africa. And I found this to be totally uh, incredibly interesting that even basic visual perception is subject to cultural variation. And at the same time, I was studying psychology and I was reading the textbooks, and I was just amazed that there's no attention to culture in these books. This is the 1980s, late 80s. And I just was like, wow, this is a really American science. This is far beyond, before the weird movement happened in uh, the social sciences more recently. And I had some pretty fundamental questions about culture. You know, how does it affect our basic psychological processes or social dynamics, um, everything from parenting to politics? Or just struck me as something that was really missing in psychology. So I left Colgate, and I worked for cross-cultural trainer, and I was looking for graduate programs to study culture and psychology, and I couldn't really find a whole lot. And I had a serendipitous call with a cross-cultural trainer who said, you need to work with Harry Triandis, who happened to be in Champaign-Urbana. And um, luckily, I got into the University of Illinois, went to Champaign-Urbana, and worked with Harry, and the rest was history. Um, Harry was an incredible Um, scholar because he was a generalist so a lot of people feel the need to specialize in psychology more and more but Harry was just interested in everything and I found that to be uh, inspiring and also he had um, not just taught me and schooled me in the debates theoretical debates methodological complexities of cross cultural research but also had a lot of interesting wisdom about life Um, he had three things he he instilled upon me one is be passionate about what you do which is not too difficult (laughs) The other is to not be afraid of controversy. But the third, probably most difficult thing, was don't take yourself too seriously. And I found that to be really something I try to um, remember a lot. Uh, I left Champaign uh, and I taught briefly at NYU before I went to Maryland, and uh, there I set up shop to run a big interdisciplinary research lab on culture. Uh, And I remember, because I was already a generalist, um, I remember the students asking me when I was interviewing, are you a social psychologist? Are you a cross-cultural psychologist? Are you IO psychologist? Like, what are you? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's a stupid question. I'm not sure I said that on the interview, but uh, I went, went on to work with um, people from neuroscience and computational modeling and anthropology, linguistics, because you need many different perspectives to understand kind of complex phenomenon like culture. So. Um, one of the things that I started to do research on, and to this day I'm fascinated with the question about social norms, um, because social norms are this invisible aspect of culture. We're constantly following social norms, um, and we don't even realize it. Um, we're an ultra-normative species. Like if I came to this discussion wearing a bathing suit, you'd probably be like, wow, that's weird. Or, you know, we are we constantly obeying rules of where we drive, um, not stealing people's food in restaurants. Um, We uh, have sex in private settings. We don't just see people having sex on buses and in movie theaters. And that's because humans develop social norms to help avoid those kind of scenarios. And they're really critical uh, invention of humans uh, because they help us to predict each other's behavior and to coordinate on an unprecedented scale. Uh, So what I was wondering about with this contract is, okay, well, we all have, all groups have norms, but it seemed to me that Some groups have stricter norms, they're more tight, and others are more permissive, they're more loose. But this was a construct that never really started to be explored in psychology. A lot of psychology focuses on individual differences, which comes from the United States, personality, not situations and norms. Nowadays, we're starting to develop a really interesting interdisciplinary field of social norms, but back in their 90s when I was starting my career, it was clearly something that was left off the map. Um, so I got an NSF grant and assembled about 40 scientists around the world uh, to study the strength of social norms. And we had some um, just basic questions like, can we measure how strict or permissive our societies? And more importantly, why did these differences evolve in the first place? I came from the triandis tradition that was, you know, culture arises because it's been adaptive, or at least had been adapted to some ecological historical conditions. Um, in the past, and so it's not just random. And also, what are the consequences of, of the strength of norms for human groups? And is it different than other constructs like collectivism or power distance? And, you know, is it old wine and new bottles? Um, and so we spent many, many years, um, with a lot of gray hair, uh, eventually published this paper in Science, um, and we're able to show that we can see across 33 nations, many different continents, that we can quantify how strict or permissive or tight or loose our societies. One of the things that we discovered um, was that there is a a pretty important predictor of why cultures evolve to be tight or loose. And that has a lot to do with something pretty simple, which is how much threat the groups face. Um, And so when you think about it, around the world, we don't have random assignment to having mother nature's fury or invasions. Some countries experience a lot of drought, a lot of famine, a lot of... um, Hurricanes, um, some countries have constant invasions uh, across their history. And the logic is pretty simple. In those contexts, you need strong rules and punishments to help people coordinate, to survive. And that was what I was testing. Um, and that's what we found. I gathered data across a hundred years on how many times nations been potentially invaded, natural disasters, um, famine, starvation, pathogens. and it was pretty clear there was a close connection between the countries that were tighter and um, and threat it's not the only predictor and there's certainly some super interesting exceptions Israel being included in that in our data Israel is pretty loose uh, a place where people try to negotiate the rules a lot um, but um, it's it has a lot of threat um, and in our data actually and, and, and discussions we could see that you know while it's Um, really pretty threatened. It's loose in large part because of religion. There's a lot of debate in Judaism. Uh, There's a lot of diversity um, in Israel which pushes groups to be loose. Um, So in any event, there's a lot of exceptions, but it's a pretty basic principle. Um, We then went on to study um, whether or not this pattern could be found within nations also. So um, the next step was to say, okay, wait, the U.S. is a pretty diverse place. Maybe we can rank order the 50 states on, on how strict or permissive the, the groups are. And does it have the same antecedents? And it turns out it does. So the south parts of the Midwest tend to be tighter in our data, uh, and they also have the most threat. Um, similar to the national level, we see in states that there's a lot more order in uh, tight states and a lot more openness and tolerance in loose states. Uh, we then zoomed in to look at this in the level of social class. like. Is this, you know, a difference isn't across classes beyond bank accounts. And it turns out the working class, which Melvin Cohen described as somewhat conformist in his data in the 60s, uh, we measured how tight are the norms in the, the working class compared to the upper class. And the simple issue is that the working class has a lot more potential threat, falling into poverty, um, uh, living in dangerous neighborhoods, working in dangerous occupations where rules really matter. Uh, in fact, if we just ask people, and I can ask you, what do you think about when I say rules or following the rules? And we got very different responses um, to this question in our research. The upper class um, are, think of them as a nuisance, they're made to be broken. But for working class, they're really important and they serve a function. So we started looking at this distinction across different levels of analysis. I like to think about it as kind of a fractal pattern that, that coming from physics, you know, that this repeated, recurring. Pattern across different levels or different scales um, that we can see the logic of the strength of norms applies in various different places, including organizations, including our own households. Um, You know, one of the issues with this uh, original data collection was that it was all correlational, and we know that there's issues when you have, um, you know, causal inferences when you have only correlational data. So, more recently, we've been trying to really develop more methods to look at causality. So we can, for example, prime threat in the lab. I can bring people in the lab and I can prime them to think about terrorism threats or to think about natural disasters or to think about population density, which is a big predictor uh, at the national level of tightness. And what's really interesting is within a couple of minutes, we can tighten people's minds, just like we see in the national level. Um, I also thought though priming has its problems. It's individual level, it's not population level. So I started to work with some evolutionary game theorists and that was a great marriage, because you know we're interested in the same phenomena of what causes certain values or norms to evolve from very different perspectives. And then we uh, have been doing some modeling to look at can you see um, that threat does cause the evolution at the population level. Of course, these are not even humans; they're agents in a model. Um, do actually come to evolve to have strong punishments and um, and norms. And that's what we started to do is to use different methods. I the most recent study that we did that was um, also trying to get at this question from a different angle was using hyperscanning with, uh, in neuroscience. So we, we wanted to see, when people feel threatened, do they actually coordinate more quickly? Uh, because that's a basic assumption of tight-loose theory. Um, and so we primed people to think about threats. And we had people both wearing EEG caps, and we were measuring how well they were coordinating on other tasks if they were threatened. But what was really interesting is to see how the role of brain synchrony uh, helps to facilitate coordination after people feel threat. And what we found uh, was that when people were under threat, they had a lot of synchrony in their brains on gamma waves, which is really one of the uh, waves that really signals threat, and this facilitated coordination. So we try to get at causal nature of the evolution of tightness from different perspectives, whether it's priming or evolutionary game theory models or neuroscience, because you want to see that your principles generalize beyond a particular method. And I'm interested in revenge uh, as another topic, but I'm interested in vicarious revenge. What conditions do people seek revenge on other people's behalf? And my hunch was that this has a lot to do with empathy. It's kind of a dark side of empathy. So I went to see Shue. We had met at a conference, didn't know each other, and I just said, hey, you know, would you like to go to the dark side and study empathy and neuroscience? And I was mapping out the theory of vicarious revenge and the role of entitativity, which just means how substitutable people are in your group and in the out group. How does revenge spread from two individuals who are having a conflict to people who have nothing to do with the conflict, even transgenerational revenge, who were not even the same generation. And I sort of said, you know, would you be interested in doing some neuroscience of revenge at the group level and go to the dark side? And that spawned a collaboration and grants and one of the first studies of group level revenge and neuroscience, fMRI. Uh, I just published a paper in the annual review of psychology on revenge and on you know, not just you know, what are the individual and, and situational factors that predict revenge, but why you know, in some ways revenge might be necessary. Uh, again, getting back to sort of evolutionary perspectives on this. Uh, we published a paper on you know, why to honor cultures, which involve a lot of revenge, why do they actually have a lot of rationality to them? In a paper in Psych Science, I worked with Andrzej Novak, who's head of the Complexity Center in Warsaw, another serendipitous collaboration, where we were trying to model you know, what conditions when people seek revenge, does it make sense? And it happens to be the case that that is very rational in contexts where there's weak institutions, uh, where there's scarcity research, where your reputation matters more uh, people say, you know, honor is worth more than money. Um, and I've been doing a lot of work on the psychology of honor in the Middle East. Um, so, you know, uh, we try to pre- present a more balanced perspective on revenge. You know, under what conditions is actually evolved and it makes sense for groups. On, and, um, and how do we present kind of the, the f- more b- global evolutionary story around revenge. Other collaborations were really serendipitous. I, I credit the Department of Defense, um, who's uh, funded a lot of basic research on culture, um, with their push toward interdisciplinary research. And I got a big MURI grant, multi-university research initiative grant, through the DOD to study conflict and negotiation in the Middle East. And I really took very seriously that this has to be a grant where people synergize, computer scientists, political scientists, psychologists. That it's not People just can't take their money and run with it. But it, you learn a lot about, how to manage these interdisciplinary collaborations. I, I remember uh, uh, Sarit Kraus, who's a computer scientist, who studies negotiation. She develops agents to negotiate, and actually happen to be better than humans when they negotiate. Um, and she came to Maryland, and we had a meeting to talk about how we're going to collaborate, and she said, I want to tell you something, Michelle. I don't care at all about human behavior. And I said, all right, Sarit, While well, we're being honest. I really don't care about your agent. <laughs> and we really sort of said, okay, we got it out of the table. and then. We were able to really figure out a way that we can use each other mutually in a mutually beneficial way scientifically. So, for example, I said to Sarit, Sarit, I think your agent is going to be better. It's going to outperform your other agent if it has cultural intelligence, if it understands cultural differences. She didn't believe it, and I said, I'll bet some money on that. And I needed her agent to study how people are negotiating in Lebanon and the U.S. and and other places with a standardized opponent. And what was exciting is that we both really benefited from each other, even though we didn't actually have the same exact interest. We published work in computer science journals. We published journals in uh, research in organizational psychology journals, on American impatience in negotiation. I mean, we really had a phenomenal collaboration. And uh, each collaboration in, in an interdisciplinary land is 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 worth the work when you have a commitment to solving some interesting problem. You know, Karl Popper said, who was a big inspiration to me? That you know, we don't—we're not students of some subject matter. We're students of problems, and problems cut across different areas. Um, I work with you know computational linguists. We just did a, a study that was published in Nature Human Behavior last week, looking at how tightness and looseness has changed over time over the last twenty years, using uh, developing a, a dictionary of of tightness and looseness. Um, I work with anthropologists, Carol Ember, um, coding ethnographies to try to test some basic ideas around um, around the strength of norms. Um, I work with political scientists to look at mediation across states and what tactics work at the national level. So it's exciting uh, to be in that space where you can bring together people to do things you could never do on your own. Yeah, well, I think you know, like I'm getting back to culture being invisible and omnipresent. I think. We think about intelligence or emotional intelligence. We rarely think about cultivating cultural intelligence. And in this ever-increasing global world, we need to understand culture. And all of this research has been trying to elucidate not just how do we understand other people who are different than us, but how do we understand ourselves? For example, Sarit and I published a paper on American impatience in negotiation. De Tocqueville actually noticed how impatient Americans were years ago. (laughs) Uh, I'm a New Yorker. I'm quasi-impatient. But, you know, we wanted to quantify what's the price tag for this kind of uh, impatience in negotiation. And it turns out that um, Americans far uh, concede much more in negotiations because of impatience, uh, because of the way they perceive time and they lose out at the negotiation table. These are important things to know about. You know, This stuff works really well in the, in the US where we are, have a culture of a lot of mobility and, and, a, and a culture where swift trust makes sense. It is totally that makes no sense in the Middle East. And a lot of our work in the Middle East has been working to try to come up with new models of how people negotiate and helping to train Americans to go and be more patient and to understand that we're not always negotiating over the economics of the deal. We might be negotiating over honor or trust. So, for example, in one really cool uh, sort of turn of events in this research project, we, were, we did hundreds of interviews in the Middle East because there's, there's very little research on psychology in the Middle East. And so we thought we got to get out there and do structured interviews, modeled after Harry Transis' analysis of subjective culture and other anthropological approaches to understanding in people's own voices, emic or you know, culture-specific constructs like honor or wasta, which is about connections or revenge or... Modesty, and um, at some point I said to my Arabic speaking RA, who we hired to work on this project, who was translating all these interviews, I said, you know, why don't we create a new honor dictionary based on this data? We know that, we could see already that there's a lot of themes of honor um, gain. How do people gain honor in the eyes of others? How do they prevent it from being lost? What's the consequences of honor loss? Let's create a new dictionary. And that's what we did, we actually have thousands of words, and it's now in Arabic, it's in Farsi, it's in, in, uh, in English. And you can use this dictionary to see uh, its role in negotiation. And you can see it in, in, on, on blogs. We can see after the Quran burning a big spike in honor talk. So these projects, they become, they take a life of their own. You, st- you have to be open, I think, to kind of seeing opportunities to do really research that would be helpful for increasing cultural intelligence. One other example I want to give is is in the organizational domain because organizations also vary on the strength of norms. Some organizations like airlines and the military and uh, construction sites, they need stronger rules to help people coordinate. And others, startups, design, they can afford to be more permissive. But what's really interesting again from a cultural intelligence point of view is when these organizations merge, they really rarely recognize the cultural iceberg that's lying beneath. They might see a lot of strategic advantages and in a recent HBR paper, I talk about the exact price tag of what happens when there's big cultural distance between organizations on tight loose and the exact amount of money that you can see that you'll lose unless you um, really negotiate this ahead of time. And I do think, though, now it's really important more and more to help get out to the community, including the State Department, including high-level officials, you know, the importance of culture in diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, and again, in the Middle East, everywhere, that, and beyond just communication, basic ways of viewing the world um, that run very deep and that evolve for good reasons. So I was kind of that typical New Yorker who had the New Yorker cartoon view of the world. There's like New York, there's New Jersey, and then there's a bunch of rocks and you know the rest of the world. And I went abroad for a semester, and uh, I was the first person in my family to go abroad. My parents are from Brooklyn. And I remember calling my father, and this relates to the Middle East, and I I said to him, Dad, it's so strange that, among other things, people are just getting up from London and going to Paris or to the Netherlands for the weekend. My dad, in his Brooklyn accent, said, well, think about it like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, Pop, that is an awesome metaphor. So literally, the next day, there's a true story, I booked a trip to Egypt by myself. I'm like, Dad, it's just like going from New York to California. Don't worry about it. And he was, of course, really waked out by this. But I took that trip by myself on a low budget tour across the Nile, started traveling. I started realizing how little I knew about culture and that's what really motivated me to um, to switch gears from being pre-med to being studying culture. And So I traveled to East Asia, to um, Europe. I'm doing a big project now on the psychology of refugees in, in um, Europe that's funded by the DOD. Again, with a sort of cultural angle of, you know, What's the process by which people are adapting in tighter cultures than to looser cultures? And how do you help people to um, create more mutual understanding, both um, to help adaptation and prevent radicalization and other things? It's really funny how you could be studying something for so long and still be a kind of a schmuck and not realizing um, how culture affects your research method, Uh, how it affects your own personal style. I'm just gonna give you one example. I did a study where we sent research assistants to 20 countries, and they were wearing stigmatized types of um, uh, identities. So I bought them warts, for example, and I put warts on their face. Uh, In another condition, they were wearing tattoos. And in another condition, they just wore their normal face. And this was through a Humboldt grant. So we trained them in Bremen, in northern Germany, where they were all going to school from their respective uh, countries at Jakobs University. And then after they were all trained up and standardized, we sent them back to their countries over the summer to do this experiment. They were asking for help on city streets. They were asking for help in shops. And we were simply interested in, is there a difference in how much help people get around the world when they're wearing stigmatized identities? But what's fascinating is that as the RAs went back to their countries, one by one, the tightest of the countries dropped out of this part of the study. They just couldn't bring themselves to wear these ridiculous warts and tattoos and ask for help. It was legal, it was ethical. But again, the schmuck in me thought, how can I not have predicted that this is gonna happen when this is a study of of tightness and deviance? Uh, And so we had enough variation to do the study, but it was remarkable how you you forget about culture meeting your own method. In my own private life, I've started to really use my research to develop a healthy family environment. So we know that, you know, I call this the Goldilocks principle of tight-loose. You know, you might need to veer tight or loose for good reasons like threat, but the more families get extreme or organizations get extreme in either direction or nations get extreme, that means super loose or super tight, the more dysfunctional they are. Actually, Durkheim talked about this um, and he has some data on it, but I actually started to study that systematically and I could see in my data that the most extreme loose societies that are bordering on enemy and unpredictability and the most tight had higher suicide, they had um, much more dysfunction and instability. And this applies not just, remarkably, the Goldilocks Principle to nations, it applies to organizations. Like United arguably is getting really too tight, even though it needs to veer tight, the airline. Uh, they needed to inject some discretion into that system. I call it flexible tightness. On the flip side, you could think about Uber or Tesla. They, need, they can veer loose for good reasons, but s- sometimes these places get too loose. And I call that, you know, they need to have more structured looseness. inject a little structure into that system. Same is said about family systems. You might need to veer tighter loose, more in a family, to help your kids deal with threats. But the more extreme you get, the more problematic. The more helicopter-like the parents are or super laissez-faire parents produce maladaptive kids. So I've been taking this to task and I'm negotiating with my kids over the domains that we need to be tight in and the domains that we could be loosened. Um, you know, the domains that are really strict are things like how hard you study and how you treat your sister. Um, but then we think, okay, what domains could be give a little lex, a little, you know, a little more um, discretion in? And so one of them is like, you can be kind of a slob. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna look at your room. Like, I'm not gonna legislate that you need to be you know, kind of really super neat. Like, there's gotta be some places where we can give some discretion and permissiveness. Um, social media use is something that we try to regulate more. Well, you know, it's fascinating. I think, I, and I talk about this in the organizational context, you can negotiate these kinds of things if you know about them ahead of time. So for example, recently uh, in the Apple, uh, the, sorry, the Amazon and the Whole Foods merger was a classic example of a tight loose conflict. Like, they really have a lot of compatibility, but Amazon veers tight, and. Whole Foods was loose, and they were miserable, particularly um, um, Whole Foods was miserable um, after this merger because a lot of the discretion that really made that company what it was was taken away. So I wrote about like, okay, we need to come up with like a prenup before we do these mergers. What domains could we have given Whole Foods employees the same discretion they had before, but what domains could we tighten up? So they like to actually have a lot of interaction with customers, that was part of the culture and it became much more standardized. And that was something that um, was lost in that merger. So I think it's important, or in households, for you know, finances, for vacations. I mean, <laughs> vacations are another example of type loose conflict. Like people who love spontaneity and want to just do anything and let things roll as they go, versus people who like a lot of structure. These can cause a lot of conflicts on vacations. And I think it's negotiable to sit down and say, like, what domains do we have to be strict in, and what domains can we have more permissiveness in? And you can create kind of win-wins. Uh, my husband definitely veers tighter than me. He's a lawyer. He's, he, by definition, is spending a lot of time uh, in, a, in an accountable type of position. Whether it, it, lawyers and public officials and bankers, they have, they have accountability. They have to answer to people. So they get to have more of a tight mindset. I, on my website, I have a tight, loose mindset that people can take to see where they veer on the construct and wh- how they can start to negotiate it with the people around them. So that's a, It's an exciting thing to join my interest in negotiation with interest in tight loose. So at the national level, um, I talk about the Goldilocks principle, which just means that we need to uh, have balance or moderation in the strength of norms. And that if we can diagnose groups, whether it's nations or uh, organizations that are get- veering in either direction, then we know that we can anticipate some problems. So for example, um, many people didn't realize that people in Mosul and other areas were welcoming ISIS when they came in. And part of that's because our data shows that there was just total enemy, total looseness in these areas. There was no security. ISIS came in and was really um, providing a lot of order um, at first um, and even developing justice systems. As another example, um, failed, you know, kind of mindset or insight into what's happening in Arab Spring, you know, you go from a very tight repressive regime and you take out that dictator, often these systems, from a dynamical systems perspective, go to the opposite extreme, to total looseness. And in our research, we could see people on the ground in Egypt, they were feeling like this is unsustainable, and they were voting for another autocratic government. We call this autocratic recidivism. So we can try to predict when these pendulum shifts will occur based on the loosening or tightening of norms. One thing I think is really exciting is to think about agency and norms, that we can actually use the power of social norms to better our planet based on this principle. We can identify when should we be tightening norms that have gotten too loose, or loosening norms that are getting too tight. Think about the internet. You know, it has, a, it has so many important and incredible qualities of connectivity and information, but it's arguably a, a really, really loose place that a lot of the people who created these mediums didn't anticipate. Psychologists know that when you're not monitored, that it produces all sorts of bad behavior. <laughs> And what if we were to say, look, we don't want to be like China that where it's super monitored, but arguably we need to tighten up these spaces. And I'm starting to do some research with some economists to try to think about how do we nudge some civil behavior without restricting um, voice on the internet, but just behaving in a space like we do face-to-face. We lived in this world for centuries, for millennia, working in face-to-face small groups. We evolved you know, to interact with people on large scale. Now we live on the internet where things are very anonymous. And I think in this case, we can sort of bottom up, start developing um, ways that we behave more civilly and tighten up. Um, And actually Reddit, you could see this evolving already in some places. Like Reddit, you you have people who are given badges for good behavior or people are kicked out if they're really, really obnoxious. Uh, top down, you know, you have more of this happening at Facebook, more accountability. So we need more accountability on the web. There, there's some people who say there should be like a driver's license to be able to go on the web. Like you need to have like certain skills to be able to operate. Not, not control content, but control, you know, the kind of anti-normative behavior that happens. I want to mention that you can also think about the flip side, about norms that are getting, that have served a purpose that have been really strict, but now are actually counterproductive. And I'm gonna give you an example. I ran a workshop in Israel last year on this topic. Um, Alan Tal, who's an activist there, came to meet with me at Maryland. He published a book called The Land is Full. And it's all about Israeli population dynamics. And it's about how you know, Israel has and is projected to have a population density that's like far beyond like the Netherlands or Singapore, and how it's affecting the environment, how like, city streets are like, going to be unsustainable, classrooms, the environment. And we talked about it, and this is about norms. You know, Israel is a pretty loose place, but like many countries, it has its own pockets of tightness. And one of the domains that's really tight in Israel is having large families. There's, I've heard that you're more like you're better off being a criminal than not having kids in Israel. There's such a strong stigma against not having kids and having large families. It's one of the highest birth rates in Western countries in Israel. Not just among religious, but among secular. And we got together, population experts from all over the place, to talk about how do you change this norm? Uh, because it was really important for good reasons years ago, but now it's really butting heads with sustainability. And what's fascinating, and a lot of people argue against this, my colleagues say, no, we'll figure this out. Like, we're not going to change this norm. The question of how do you change norms in different cultures is fascinating. The kind of nudge movement um, that tends to be kind of focused on the United States is something that I'm predicting, and I'm going to help try to do this, will explode to to be global. Because the same nudges that work here might not work in tighter loose cultures. You know, also it's fascinating. I've been partnering with people that you know are coming from like the World Bank and UNICEF. They're trying to also change maladaptive norms in Africa, and a lot of the places originally would go into these contexts which are pretty tight, um, where they try to change personal attitudes and values. And guess what? This had very little effect because even if you change your attitudes about genital cutting or about breastfeeding or about sending your kids to school, you're having a coordination game. You know, you have to deal with social norms and punishments and being ostracized in these contexts. So it's fascinating that social norms now are a big deal at the World Bank and at UNICEF and many places that are trying to enact change in different contexts, because they're arguably trying to loosen up tight norms that have served some purpose, uh, but they've been trying to nudge that through something that works more in the United States, which is on personal attitudes. that's kind of, I think, a really exciting direction, is how do you tighten norms that need to be tightened and loosen them and know the difference? <laughs> They're dynamic. Um, and I think that with um, more and more research on this topic, we'll be able to, to do it more successfully. So there's a field that focuses on you know, horizontal evolution and how like, the new way that cultures evolve is through this kind of bottom-up processes of individuals coming together and um, organizing, and then stuff happens, emerges. That's compared with vertical transmission, uh, which is something that has been very popular in evolutionary theory, how, how we sort of, from a top-down perspective, change cultures. Uh, I think that horizontal evolution, the authors are coming from a loose culture where this is very predominant. In tighter cultures, you know, where people learn that rules matter, they're looking more to authorities to help organize social action. And, It's more uh, anxiety-provoking to have bottom-up horizontal transmission. You know, I've been studying uh, as young as three-year-olds in terms of how they react to rules. We brought in three-year-old kids from the working class and uh, three-year-old kids from the middle and upper class. And we borrowed Michael Tomasello's paradigm, where they interacted with a puppet. Because we can't ask them about how much do you like rules. (laughs) But we can have them interacting with a puppet. Max the puppet. And Max is playing games with them, these new games that the rules were invented. And then all of a sudden, Max does something kind of weird. He starts violating the rules of the game. And he actually announces he's playing the game correctly. And we can videotape these kids and simply look at, how do the kids react? And it turns out that they react really differently. The working class kids, by age three, are protesting against this puppet for breaking the rules. They're learning by age three that these rules matter. We do other work um, that is looking now about how culture is ingrained when it comes to social norm violations. We compare. Chinese and Americans um, to how they react um, when people violate norms. And it's very clear that brain activity is really uh, much stronger in the frontal area, for example, which is an area evolving to think about punishment and theory of mind among Chinese subjects. These things are, uh, they're hard to change. They can be changed, but we should remember that uh, they are uh, the product of an evolutionary process where some groups, want stronger rules and stronger leaders. It might help us to promote some empathy with people who, in our case, in the United States, um, people like Trump or in Europe, uh, Le Pen or people who are against Brexit, they all are yearning for a traditional order. And we can try to understand that, that there's serious disruptions among the working class, Um, very serious. Thomas Friedman, friend of mine, talks about this all the time. You know, there are very, the world is changing dramatically. And then you have leaders who appeal to these groups, maybe even exaggerate threats, targeting these groups. It should be no um, surprise that people are hoping that these leaders will return them to a traditional order because the world feels like it's falling apart. I think, yeah, you know, I've been looking at how other countries are navigating issues of, of class, for example, and in Germany, you know, it's very different type culture. There's a lot more standardization around uh, education in terms of working class getting certificates that can be used to go from different organizations. There's some help in terms of um, uh, helping people navigate um, non-college education content. I mean, and you look at the U.S. really pretty loose context. Obviously, some states tighter than others, but there's very little support. Uh, for vocational manufacturing types of jobs and the kind of support systems that you see in other countries. And so it should not be surprised that people among certain demographics and classes are feeling that sense of disruption. And we have to deal with that, and that will help us to move beyond uh, what feels to be uh, just an incredibly mesmerizing or, or puzzling period in our democratic history.